welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. The event we just read, of course, is, uh, is the event known as the Last Supper, Jesus' last meal with his friends before going through the events uh, of his crucifixion and resurrection. And I've always been struck by the fact that Jesus was especially looking forward to celebrating this meal with his friends. Because, I mean, they, they'd basically been living together for three years. They'd eaten together a lot. And I tell you, I've eaten with a bunch of guys before, and it's not usually a pretty picture. I can only imagine what it must have been like to eat on the road with this lot. And, by the way, Jesus is expecting... A pretty stressful, painful, unpleasant experience ahead of him. He knows he's about to suffer. Which, you know, the idea of staring down the barrel at an evening of suffering, the first thought usually isn't, oh, well, let me grab a quick bite to eat before I do that. And yet, there's something about this meal that Jesus is looking towards that will help him get through the pain and the suffering that he's about to experience. But of course, we know this wasn't just any meal. This is the Passover meal. It's a deeply significant event in Jewish tradition, which, you know, we we can kind of understand. Obviously, in our American culture, we understand the significance of sharing significant meals together, right? I mean, Thanksgiving, Christmas, rehearsal, dinners, you know, these are meals that they mean something. And sharing those meals with significant people in our lives, it matters. They're important events. Not just because of the actual food, of course. Uh, I mean, I, for one, would be fine never to eat turkey again in my life. Uh, it's dry, it's a pain to bake, got to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning. And then there's just all this pressure around carving the turkey. Uh, don't get me started on stuffing. Like, that's a really unfortunate name for a side dish. It tastes about as good as it sounds. And yet, Thanksgiving is by far my favorite meal of the year. Because of who's there. Not that the people are gathered are significant in some historic or social influencing uh, sense. They are significant, though, to the rest of us that are around the table. The shared stories, the memories, people who have done life together, a family, spouses, parents, children, extended family, close friends that have become family. The power of these kinds of meals, though, extends even further. In that the power of these, these meals are able to make family out of strangers. Just by the fact that they're there. You know that Thanksgiving meal that you get invited to at the last minute, maybe because... I don't know, you're, you, you were stuck at college and you couldn't go home for the holiday or you're just randomly, you know, have no place to go that, that year. And so you go and you get there and there's nobody that you know at this, you know, weird family Thanksgiving dinner, you know, with 
grandma and, you know, the uncles and aunts and the extended cousins that, you know, uh, sort of there. And, and yet by the end of the night, you've been brought into the inner circle of the family. You've heard everybody's embarrassing life stories. You know, grandma's brought out the photo album and shown you the baby pictures. You've figured out some of the inside jokes around the table. And even though you may never see these people again, something has happened there that has connected you now to the rest of these people. Somehow being there at this moment, even though you were a stranger, you became family. And whatever burdens you came in with that day, well, they feel a little, a little lighter after you leave. So it makes sense that after three years, possibly close to 3,000 meals together, it does make sense that Jesus would have been looking forward to this meal, to this moment, this one gathering of his friends, at this one moment before the most difficult moment of his life. It was Passover, and yet, and yet, Jesus knew it was more than that. Jesus knew that in this meal that he had been looking forward to sharing with his friends, that he was now starting a new tradition. The first of millions of these meals that would be shared around the world for, well, for the 2,000 plus years since that moment. A meal that would serve as the foundational practice for the community of people that he was establishing for the church. This meal would be, be quite literally the lifeblood of the church. An event by which he would be present to his people, they would be present to him. An event through which they would be able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, breathe life into one another. You see, right from the beginning, from the very first of these meals, this thing was not to be an encounter simply between each of them and Jesus. Jesus gives them the cup and tells them, divide it among you. You see, their experience with Christ wasn't just between each of them and Jesus. Their experience of Christ in this meal was going to be shared which is something that is really easy for me to forget sometimes. You see, one of the, you know, thankfully, one of the foundational values of our culture is this idea of the freedom of religion, something that I'm very grateful for because it means that faith practice in the United States can be authentic, uncoerced. It means congregation like ours can gather without being monitored or censored. Freedom of religion is great. Love it. Would hate to not have it. But part of the package that comes with this freedom of religion, living in a culture that has freedom of religion, is that faith has now become intensely personal. What one believes and what one does because of one's faith. It falls firmly in the category of things that are none of anybody else's business. We get to practice any religion we want to. 
And so, in general, our practice of religion is a matter of individual choice. That what we do as an individual for our own individual benefit. And so in our culture, it's very easy for much of our worship, much of our practice of the Christian faith, that we do that as individuals. I come to church to be filled up so that I can live out my faith the rest of the week. I listen to sermons so that I can learn more about God be more informed about my faith during the worship time. I work to connect with God. Ask those of us who come to church why we come to church. And most of us will answer with some version of, well, I just need it because it fills me up for the rest of the week. I can't follow Jesus without getting spiritually fed. Or some variation of that. And this practice that we are talking about today, this practice of the Lord's Supper, can very easily become one of the most individual, personal practices of all. A place where I examine and reflect on what Christ did for me. Where I seek to personally, once again, you know, experience my need for him, where I personally receive his body and blood as payment for my sins, as the nourishment to live my life in the reality of his kingdom. And of course, all of this is gloriously true in general terms. But if we look into it a little bit deeper and read between the lines of our practice of personal faith, you will find in there a subtle heresy that actually lies in direct opposition to the Christianity that Jesus established and that was practiced by his earliest followers. You see, take this cup and divide it among you is not something that Jesus said because he didn't have enough wine. It was purposeful. Jesus here is making the broken bread, the shared cup, the sacramental reality of the common body and shared blood that we are now a part of. Jesus did not institute this meal as an individual act, but as a communal one. So communal that Jesus told them, I'm not going to do this again without you. I will not eat again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This has always been the understanding of this meal. This thing, we do this together. That's why, you know, one of the names of it is called communion. So important is the communal part of the Lord's Supper. In some Christian traditions, you know, Greek Orthodox to be one of them, it is actually forbidden to take communion by yourself. To be a minimum of three people in the room when you do it. You see, while our participation in the Lord's Supper is definitely beneficial to us, I mean, of course it is. Of course I am nourished and I encounter the risen Christ in communion. But still, our personal benefit from communion isn't the main reason we do it. Communion isn't something that we take just for me. It is something in which we participate for the purpose of edifying and building each other up. 
And we build each other up because in this meal, we see our shared humanity. Because you see, the first thing we realize when we come to the communion table is that while it may be hypothetically true that even if I was the only one, Jesus would have still died for me. The obvious truth that we see around the table is that I'm not the only one. I'm not the only sinner in this room. I'm not the only needy one. Rather, in this room, around this table, I am reminded by all of you that I'm a part of a community of sinners that needed a Savior. And that got a Savior. A Savior who was sufficient for all of us. It's not just me that needs Jesus. It's not just my mistakes that have messed the world up. It's not just me that can't get my act together. The condition of the world is not all my fault. This is something that's really easy to forget in our hyper-individualistic world. This world of, you know, team sports where one player is credited with the success or the failure of the team. Have you ever noticed that? I remember there's this heartbreaking story I read back in 2005, uh, an article about uh, Darius Washington, who was a basketball player back then at the University of Memphis under John Calipari when he was there. In the conference USA championship game, Memphis needs to win this game to get into the NCAA tournament which is a big deal for those of you non-basketball fans. Darius Washington is at the free throw line. No time on the clock. His team is down by one. And he has two free throws. And he misses both of them. And even though few of us have played high-level sports, few of us have ever been in a situation to make or break it for our team. Still, every single one of us can identify with that feeling of being at the line with two shots down by one and missing both of them. Because we feel like that sometimes, don't we? Like we were at the free throw line in our life or our family's lives or our friend's lives or our country's life or the world's existence was down by one. And we missed both free throws. And that is a lonely feeling to carry through life. And yeah, I mean, we can positive talk ourselves out of it that like no one can judge us because everybody screwed up and we can go through life angry at all the people who are making us feel bad about missing those free throws. But when we come together at the Lord's table, what we are telling each other when you come to the table, when I come to the table, when we come together, what we are looking at each other in the eye and saying to each other is, yeah, yeah, I miss my free throws too. And with that, we help move one another from this lonely isolation, the loneliness of failure. And we include each other into the family. 
Last week, Mike read uh, this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that describes kind of what happens to us as we come to Christ. And, and, and Peter says, we go from being individual stones, rocks along the road, to being built into a spiritual house. We become a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, Peter says. It's the power that we have when we show up for family dinner. It's a message to the family there that they are not alone, but that they, we are all a part of something. That is the same here as we come to the Lord's table. We are a visible reminder to one another that we are not just isolated rocks lying by the side of the road. We, you, me, everybody, we have been chosen on purpose, invited on purpose to be a part of the church. This is the power of the shared elements, the shared cup, the shared bread. It's all of us partaking from the same Christ that brings us into this family. This is why, you know, in some Christian traditions, when you take communion, you will physically drink from the same cup, you know, something that seems unthinkable now in our post-COVID world. But still, you get the idea. In the early church, actually, as as the movement started to grow, congregations started to get bigger, and they start to outgrow the homes that they were meeting in, and just physical necessity necessitated them to meet in different homes. They were so distressed by not being in the same building that they would actually still take communion from the same loaf. They would bake one big loaf, and then they'd run chunks of bread to each other, you know, all across town, so that when it came time to sharing the elements, they would be reminded, we are all a part of one body. Which is why, of course, disunity and unforgiveness is so damaging at this table. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 17, Paul, Paul writes this. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. You know you're in trouble when the passage starts like that. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. He says, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place... I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I think that's a sarcastic little, like, snarky term that he put in there. He goes on. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another one gets drunk. Which is a, this is scary for him to say this. That there are in fact times that our celebration of the Lord's table might do more harm than good. That it could drain life rather than breathe it in to one another. But I think all this does serve to emphasize how communal this meal is intended to be. In that when we are not in unity, this whole thing breaks down. It's like those times when somebody doesn't 
make it to family dinner. I don't mean the times when, you know, you, you, you got to go to Christmas to the in-laws house so you can't be there or, you know, or life is just too crazy or maybe somebody is sick and you can't make... No, I mean the times when we come together and yet someone is missing around the table because they are sending a message by not being there. They're sending the message of, I do not want to be a part of this family. Or, I don't feel like I'm a part of this family. Or, being a part of this family is just too much work. It's not worth it. Maybe they're in conflict with something around the table. And it's just easier not to deal with it. We know what our dinner feels like in those times. Something's off. It actually hurts the rest of the people that are there because we all know that somebody isn't there. We all know why they're not there. And it just hurts. And it's not that when Jesus told his disciples to do this in remembrance of me, that he was some, under some delusion that everything was always going to be hunky-dory in their community. I mean, remember, even at the first celebration of the Lord's table, There was a traitor in their midst. Jesus knew there was a traitor in their midst. The call for unity around the Lord's table isn't a call to pretend that there isn't conflict or differences, but it is a call to resolve our conflict and difference so that when we come together, there is unity. And finally, we breathe life into one another in our celebration of the table because in this sharing, partaking together of the body and the blood of the Messiah, we proclaim the gospel to each other again. You see, the story of the gospel is the foundational truth that makes it possible for you and me to live any aspect of the eternal kind of life, from being able to love our coworker that just credit, took credit for our idea, to somehow filling us with confidence as we stare down the inevitability of our own death and the death of those we love. We need the gospel for all of that, all the time. And when we come to the Lord's table together, the Apostle Paul tells us that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We do it when we proclaim the mystery of our faith together, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We do it as we receive the words of the person that is serving us the elements when they tell us that the body of Christ was broken for us, that the blood of Christ was shed for us. We do it as we eat the bread and drink the cup as an act of acceptance of Christ as the Savior, not only of our soul, but the soul of anyone who would willingly receive it. Really, coming to the Lord's table, it really kind of the ultimate act of sharing our faith. You see, we all come with varying degrees, varying strengths of faith. And frankly, there are different every time we come. 
Sometimes we come to the table and my faith is strong and your faith is weak. Other times it's your faith that is strong and it is my faith that is weak. But you see how much faith you have or don't doesn't matter. All either of us needs is enough faith to come to partake. Because at the table, your faith and my faith, they blend together. And they become our faith. And by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, our faith is enough. Our faith is enough for communion. Not just between me and Jesus, or Jesus and me, but communion of Jesus with us, us and Jesus, and us with one another.